Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 31. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode is a really very special episode because it features my conversation with Kevin Ahern of Manhattan College. Kevin is one of my closest friends. He's an excellent person. He's a very thoughtful theologian, and he's one of the founding members of the Daily Theology blog. And in this episode, you will get to hear him talk about how his experience of childhood illness shaped his vocation to be a theologian, about how he understands public theology and how to do public theology in today's world, and also what is the importance uh, and responsibility of lay, of lay leadership in the church. So I hope that you will enjoy. I hope that you will leave us a review or rate us on iTunes uh, or on Stitcher, where you can find our podcasts, or on Google Play. We are now on Google Play, if that's your preferred mode of uh, listening to podcasts. So please let us know what you think of the episode, what you think of the podcast overall. And as always, thank you for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I am here today with Kevin Glauber Ahern, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Manhattan College. He is also, and he'll correct me when I'm wrong, he is the director of the Peace Studies Program. Uh, are you also director of the Labor Studies Program? No longer. No longer? Yes. You let that one go? I left that one go, yes. He's a former co-editor of the Daily Theology blog. And was the best man at my wedding. So he has a fairly illustrious resume. Kevin, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I know we have been wanting to interview you for a while. I I imagine you have been wanting to be interviewed for a while. I will ask you the same question I ask everyone, which is, how did you come to do theology? Great. Thanks, Steve. And thanks for your work on this uh, amazing podcast. For me, and I, I think my vocation as a theologian goes back to my experience as a child of being ill. When I was around 10 years old, I started get, having a lot of uh, strange medical conditions, and it related. They ended up just seeing that it was Lyme disease. And this chronic Lyme uh, was so severe for me that I was out of school for five years. I missed most of what we'd say middle school and high school. Now, a lot of, a lot of people would probably be happy to miss that. <laughs> but I, you know, being confined to bed for a few years, not having a sense of what was the real medical reasons for my, for, for my pain and suffering, uh, that, a lot of anxiety related to that. And the medical bills that my parents were facing uh, was, uh, and, the, and the struggles with the insurance companies was, was a real sort of wake-up call. And I think I saw God in two ways in, that, in those moments. One was through the parish community at my, uh, my town in New York. They created a foundation called Friends of Kevin to help my parents pay for the medical bills. And that was, you know, a real op- eye-opening experience for me to see the power of church organizing. And as we'll probably get to, that's been a theme even in my own research and my own sort of vocation story. The other thing was in the moments of suffering and the moments of seeing compassion and the mercy of people around me, whether they be doctors or family members, really opened my eyes to the presence of God there. I think there's a real temptation in moments of suffering for one to question the existence of God. I think that's perfectly rational. But there's also, I think, an experience that many people face where in those moments of suffering, you see God. 
And I liken it to almost the experience when you walk into a church and there's a sanctuary candle on. If all the lights are on in the church, you don't see the sanctuary lamp. You don't see the, the little little mm. flicker of flame near the, near the tabernacle. But when all those lights are out, that light that was there all along mm-hmm. is now really visible. Mm. So that, that's part of my vocation story. When I was getting better, uh, I went to Fordham, uh, I was, but I was really passionate to try to give back to the church and try to give back to my community, and I started getting involved in different social movements, particularly the international movement of Catholic students, and throughout my college at, at Fordham, I, I went down to the UN representing them. After graduating from Fordham, I was elected as president of this movement and worked for four years doing this mission type. How program. did you find out about this group? I mean, I, I, yeah. I, admit, I mean, honestly, I wasn't raised Catholic, so that might be part of it, but like, mm-hmm. I, I had never heard of them before I met you. So. Right, and I, that's a really interesting fact, yeah, and a good story. I, when I was getting better, I couldn't go away to college at first. So I went to the local community college just to get some credits and also to get on, keep on my parents' insurance. And while I was there, I wanted to start a Catholic student group. Mm. I wanted to start a campus ministry. And I wasn't able to get support from the diocese or the local parish. I finally found support through the National Catholic Student Coalition, which was the U.S. affiliate of, okay. of the International Movement of Catholic Students. And they were like, yeah, we also have status at the U.N. Do you want to come down and since you're in New York and like <laughs> like hang out and go, go represent uh, this our global movement and one of the largest student-led student organizations in the world, one of the largest lay-led lay movements, too, in the church. And so I was like, okay. And I went into this whole world that I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. And it was really neat because the student movement has a sister organization of Catholic intellectuals and professionals, and the representatives of of that movement at the UN were this older couple, and he had been president of the international student movement in 1939. Jeez. And he was the last American and the first to be president of that movement Mm -hmm. until before me. And so I and this guy was was John Courtney Murray's assistant at Vatican II. Mm. He was uh, involved in a lot of really interesting conversations in post-war Europe. Someone who had done who had done a tremendous amount of good. This this man Ed Kirshner and his wife Louisa, and they they I, I was able to see the history of the church in their lives of this of these two people who had organized the this World Congress in 1939 at Fordham of the student movement. And it just was just really, I learned what it meant to be a theologian through the lens of an activist. Mm, okay. And so, in what I really had this deep passion to explore the intellectual side was how is God at work in communities? Okay. So in my work with the student movement, traveling to visit student groups and, and working with other movements of young workers or movements of religious, especially religious women, or Jesuit-related organizations, you see this incredible amount of good that's being done in the world. How is God working in there? Mm-hmm. And I think many, many people who are leading like a local nonprofit or a local group of, of workers, they know and they feel God's presence. But very few time, very few, there are very few spaces to really say, to ask the question, how is God at work? And if God is at work in our communities, what does that mean for how we organize? Mm-hmm. And so when I was applying to grad school after four years working for this movement, that was the main question I really wanted to ask. And so I, even though I, I, I'm an academic theologian, 
I, I, I approach that through the lens of activism and communities. And I think that's really important. So why in, in your, I mean, you're at Fordham and you're involved in this movement. You then you were four years in Paris, right? After that, you know, helping to run it is the, uh, maybe this is my ignorance of the organization itself too, but I mean, is the is the sort of natural path after those four years to go to grad school, or is it to go into, you know, direct advocacy kind of work, or you know, what, or maybe the other lens on that is, what was it about going back for a, a PhD for graduate work for the academic focus that drew you to be sort of the theologian as activist or mm-hmm. or activist as theologian? I'm not sure which way you want to go with that, but. Yeah, uh, if I look at the people who came before me in the in this this movement, or even my colleagues who I was serving with, mo- I was the only one that went to to academic theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Previous international team members generally went three routes. One would be the academic route as usually sociologists. Mm. And so several sociologists, of re- major sociologists of religion coming from Latin America or, or Spain, they they were involved in our movements. And there's just something about a movement that, that encourages people to think, follow the see, judge, act method that, that our move, family of movements developed that matches well with sociology of religion. Uh, you know, the see, judge, mm-hmm. act, do social analysis linked with faith. The, another route that former team members went is working for the UN. So in my four years, I was working with a young Cameroonian, and he does investigations in the Democratic Republic of Congo of war crimes. Hmm. And now, and he's, you know, just an amazing human being doing, even though he's not at all working in the church world, he is doing church work in my mm-hmm. view. And the people who in high-level positions in the ILO or people in high-level positions in other UN bodies or other nonprofit work uh, would be uh, would be that. The third the third area would be the church development organizations. Okay. So the family of church development organizations who were our primary funders would then hire people coming out of this of this world. So. If I wanted to stay in Europe and work for church advocacy organizations, I'm sure I could have done that. The idea of a lay theologian, I think in the United States, we we really are lucky because if you go to especially Africa uh, and other and some and the Middle East, the idea that a lay person could be a, a theologian is a real and, and even still still in the United States, right? Like the idea that a lay person would have a vocation as a theologian mm-hmm. is, is is kind of an anomal an anomaly. And so I remember a lot of people asking me, you know, so you're a theologian, are you gonna be a priest? Yeah. No. But my, my favorite was one time going into uh, Israel and the uh, this like young soldier who was you know trying to figure out who who I was. I was saying, okay, you're a missionary for this Catholic student organization. Are you a student? No. Are you a priest? No. Are you a missionary? Like who? Like try to figure out like what the heck I was. Sounds like a to bad explain. cover story. Yeah, yeah, no, it totally was. And I was. It was even more complicated because I was traveling with an Australian friend who. So the organization I was president of was the International Movement of Catholic Students for College Level, and our sister movement uh, for high school level is called the International Young Catholic Students. And so we had the same address in Paris because mm-hmm. our offices were together, and she but the organizations were slightly different and they separated us into two like holding rooms and they were like well you know we got you mm-hmm. you say you're with this IMCS and she says she's with IYCS so we got you mm-hmm. I'm like 
this is a 50-year-old story of tension between these two organizations. You really want us to <laughs> pull that up? But uh, no, it's, it's uh, I think the path to go the academic route, you know, sometimes you regret, sometimes you wonder, like, mm-hmm. what if I had done something else? And I'm sure all of us do, right? But really, I just, I think I feel so called to be with students in the classroom. And also, I love the privilege of being able to research. Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a joy to, to have that privilege to research. And I want my research, I believe all theology must have an impact on the church and on the commu- and the, the broader tr- mission of the church to witness to the kingdom of God in the world. So to be able to do that is such a, such a privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the area that you went into when you came to BC is ethics. And there's clearly, like, the, the, there's the applied dimension to that. So I, I see the connection there. And I... I mean, would you sort of, insofar as you want to pigeonhole yourself, like, do you think of what you're doing in terms of, like, social ethics, in terms of political ethics? Um, I know you have a strong sense of, as you were just saying, the the public dimension to your work as a theologian. I I guess maybe the the question I want to ask is, how do you pitch this, present this, model this for students? Like, what is it that you're doing with them, and how are they understanding what you're doing in terms of they're taking classes, that you're, you know, you're making them read texts, things like that. But you have this, this activist bent to it. How, how, do you, how does that tie together for you as teacher? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm know, glad you say so, because I was not sure how to phrase it. No, no, I, and I think it, it raises a lot of interesting issues of identity, and it raises a lot of interesting issues on theological education in in the United States today. You know, ethics is a really, really interesting way to approach theology because it draws from multiple different fields. I, at, at, in some places, I would identify, because my training is in theological ethics, as a theological ethicist. In some more, and that works really well sometimes with secular colleagues. Mm-hmm. In other, and you're, pla- and you're in a religious studies department. I'm in a religious right? studies department yeah. in a college that that is very pluralistic in its faculty mm-hmm. and its and its Catholic identity. There's a lot of interesting questions there. So saying I'm a theological ethicist opens the door in in, in a certain way that if I said I was a moral theologian, mm-hmm. the door would be closed for certain okay. people. And so, but but if I meet a bishop, I might use the phrase a moral theologian. Now, is that is that a healthy way of understanding? I don't know. I personally really like the language of a public theologian. That's, I mean, my mentor David David Hollenbach and 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 other people who I really really respect. I think are people who do public theology, mm-hmm. and I think uh, public theology is not just done by individuals; it's also done by communities mm-hmm. and movements. And so maybe I feel feel more as a public theologian, but that's kind of a hard tagline to put on your. It sounds very pretentious. It kind uh, of, well, and that's kind of, I mean that's one of my I guess logistical questions on a certain level is like. You know what does it mean to be a public theologian in terms of the the audiences that you're speaking to, the way that you're presenting it, the you know what you're doing with, say, uh, very carefully distinguished, nuanced work that you've done, that you then you've got five minutes to present this, you've got th- five hundred words to present this, yeah. you know, like. What is, what is, I don't know, what does it look like for you being a public theologian? Yeah, I mean, you, if you go and connect with a group of religious women who have spent years of their life 
reading theology and know who David Hollenbach is or know who David Tracy is or know who, uh, you know, Beth Johnson is. That language, I think, makes sense. But if you go to a group of undergrads or even a parish audience where mm-hmm. religious the- theological literacy is very low, if not existent. My students don't have any idea what the difference between theology and religion is, Mm -hmm. right? Even if I go through with it multiple times, even by the end of the semester, the religious studies course, which the the method and the framework in which I do, for example, the intro to world religions, is not a theology course. Mm -hmm. And I, even though I repeatedly go through with them what the difference between catechesis, theology, religious studies is, they still, by the end of the day, think that they're in some, or many, several of them, think they're in some glorified catech- catechetical course. Yeah. And I don't think that's healthy, and I think that's problematic. Mm-hmm. And I, I really loved when I was able to teach at the graduate level in Boston, either at a seminary for second career vocations or at a course I taught at uh, Boston College's grad school, you know, the ability to sort of own my identity as a theologian. Mm -hmm. uh, I I miss that in the sense that I can't, there isn't a room and there isn't the literacy to be able to do that right away Mm -hmm. in the undergraduate spaces that I'm at right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I don't. I don't know about like. What's your thought on the I don't know. identity and, question? And, well, and part of it is I, I'm thinking about you know we're here at the College Theology Society annual meeting, and I'm thinking about this paper that I heard yesterday that was about. It was a really interesting paper about Pope Francis as a public theologian, and it was looking at you know his visit to the U.S. and you know the different sort of in a way kind of symbolic acts that people you know often associate with Pope Francis in terms of people he meets with or where he goes and that kind of thing, and. And I, I was thinking in part in terms of, you know, my, my lens for public theology is, is David Tracy, who's, you know, the, the guy that I write about. But one of the things that I, I find, I guess, amusing is he's such a great theorist of public theology. And he's also somebody that, like, nobody outside the academy has ever heard of. And so, like, he's great at writing up about public theology, but he's not a public theologian. And not that he has to be. That's, that's not a criticism. It's just a it's a way of thinking about it. And I, you know, from this talk, what I've been what's been on my mind the last, you know, twenty four hours, I guess, is what what does it mean to actually do public theology or be a public theologian? And with Francis in a lot of ways, and this was true also of John Paul II, a lot of it is spectacle, is symbol, is performance is theater and I, I don't say those in judgmental ways but that's you know that's what people remember right and so people you know people remember Francis asking the people to bless him when he's announced or they remember him touching you know the man on the you know the side of the you know when he's traveling through the square and the man is very disfigured and he hugs him and, and whatnot and those aren't those aren't arguments those aren't texts those aren't nuanced that they're they're acts and so they're they're different in a sense from the type of public theology i'm used to thinking about which for me as a theologian is blog posts and twitter and op-ed <laughs> and giving talks at parishes and and, and books going on well books and going on the radio and, and and that kind of thing and so some of my question for you is out of my own trying to think about like what is like well one do i want to be a public theologian but two you know what does that look like in the very privileged space that I occupy. Well, I, I think 
the language of simple language of those small acts that's a testimony that's mm-hmm. witness and you can witness to the kingdom of god or you can witness to the to the kingdom of of fallen humanity, right? Mm-hmm. So there are different symbolic actions, right? Um, obviously, Francis asking to bless is it blesses having people bless him as a witness of the kingdom of God, right? But uh, you know, I think this is where the power I see of social movements and using looking at social movements as theological actors, looking at social movements as themselves communicating a form of public theology is really interesting. And in terms of teaching, mm-hmm. na- the narratives of whether you're talking about uh, a religious congregation of women religious as a social movement you know like i had i have students recently do presentations on for example the 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 sisters founded by mother cabrini Mm -hmm. and they were like amazed to hear these stories Mm -hmm. of like founding hospitals and founding schools when women couldn't vote women were able to were founding these incredible hospitals Mm -hmm. and these those are public like those are public testimonies, mm-hmm. like as a community. And I think it communicates something about God mm-hmm. and the nature of God to look at the work of these movements. Or Homeboy Industries, what Greg Boyle mm-hmm. started, right? And I think it's also helpful to, if you look at the community as a theological text, rather than individuals, because too often the individuals that are part of the canon are, you know, old white dudes. Mm-hmm. So how do we look at communities that are more dynamic, that are more inclusive, that that bring in more voices of, of people who are on the margins of society yeah. as theological agents, you know, people without PhDs? And the other thing that I, I think about with this is, like, you mentioned David Hollenbach earlier, and I, I had a class with him at, at BC where we read John Courtney Murray, and we read Reinhold Niebuhr, and... And we were talking about kind of public theology and, you know, one of, not necessarily out of that class, but one of the, you know, narratives we sometimes hear is like, you know, there is no Reinhold Niebuhr today. There's no, there's no figure, not in terms of the arguments per se, but there's no person who is a theologian of high caliber who is also going to be on the cover of Time magazine, who is going to be doing, you know, these big speaking tours where like tons and tons of people are turning out. Or I, I remember when I was at Chicago hearing these stories about like when, when Hans Kuhn came to the U.S. and did his big tour and was just, you know was selling out these giant auditoriums. I mean, those kind of things don't seem to happen anymore. And I think some people read that as a decline of public theology. And I, I guess my question is, or, or not for you specifically, although if you have an answer, that'd be great, is... It's just there's the, the mode of public theology is not the same as it could have been in the 60s when you have these emergent mass communication systems that are now much more fragmented. Right. So. I mean, Time Magazine, like, what is Time Magazine? What does the cover of Time Magazine mean? Yeah. Right? I mean, my students have no idea what that means. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like I, I, you know, sometimes one of the podcasts I listen to, they often are talking to comedians. And when they talk to older comedians, like, the big thing for comedians is when you got on Carson. Right. It wasn't the Tonight Show. It was Carson. And like if you got, if you got on Carson and and gave your you know your, your three minutes, your five minutes, and Carson invited you over, like you were set, you had made it, you were good. But like that that's like that means nothing now because there isn't Carson. There's you know thirty people doing late night and right. But but we have we have public theological figures, not necessarily public theologians, but public theological figures going on to like Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. or going on to uh, even even uh, John Stewart's show, right? Mm-hmm. So like Simone Campbell, like mm-hmm. in The Nuns on the Bus. Like that 
probably got just as much, if not more, attention mm-hmm. than the, you know a Reinhold Niebuhr on a cover yeah. of a magazine, right? Uh, and their impact on public policy, right? That's that's yeah. enormous. Even if even if people might disagree with, like that's a, you can't disagree with their impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is that's incredible. And I think there is a real theological. I think when the nuns on the bus movement is is going, there's there's a lot of public theology being communicated there. Yeah. And now I think one of the challenges for for social movements that are in those spaces or figure like great figures like someone like Jim Martin, who, you know, is, is a spiritual master as Orbis book just has released a just <laughs> quick commercial break there. Uh, Modern <laughs> spiritual master series. No, but, but uh, you know, he's a he's. He's not a trained academic theologian. Mm-hmm. So it puts the academic theologians in kind of this weird space. Yeah. Because we, we're, not bishop, we're not bishops usually. Many of us, increasingly number of us, are not religious or priests. But what is our role with these movements that have a public, that have a public yeah. face? What role can we play to help them? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on the. I, I don't know about you, but I didn't go into academic theology to sell out an auditorium mm-hmm. or to be on a cover of Time magazine. Uh, I mean, maybe I think. I mean, you did maybe. But. Yeah, but I mean, on the other hand, though, you know, when I if I go and give a talk at a parish, I mean, they're not coming because oh, it's you know Steve Oakey's giving a talk. It's because you know if the material is interesting to them and it fits their schedule. But I mean, there's definitely <laughs> if the room is full, that's a lot more gratifying (laughs) you know it's five people who showed up that night so oh yeah or like you know if new york times or other reporters call me to ask about pope francis or background information like uh, that's that's really wonderful Mm -hmm. that's really awesome but it's not like you know but i don't i that's not my my the mission of my vocation yeah and i think if your vocation to become a theologian was to be a public figure yeah and to have your own Wikipedia page or mm-hmm. whatever it is, I think that's that's sort of a distorted. It's, like, it's yeah. a great standard by which to make it <laughs> right. And I, I mean, you know, there's also this question in, in it about uh, the the privileging of if it's going to be theology, it has to be academic theology, and I I, I I definitely see that as a temptation for a lot of people in terms of how we think about it, and. I, you know, in, in earlier work that I did, I, I like to talk about Fulton Sheen as a theologian and not not because he's writing these amazingly developed tracks, but because he had he figured out television and figured out that communications medium in a way that was very effective. He won an Emmy for... Well, I, the distinction yeah. in liberation theology between first order and second order theology, I mm-hmm. think, is really helpful. Yeah. As academics, we are doing second order theology because theology if it's incarnational, needs to pay attention to mm-hmm. experience. And even if it's pneumatological, even if it's even it's about the creator, it needs to pay attention to the experience of lived reality, not live in some la-la land either. Mm-hmm. And the lived reality that most theologians are asking in the world is the lived reality of suffering and experience mm-hmm. that that's first-order theology. So when I was sick and asking the question, why is good God allowing this terrible like pain and suffering to befall me as a kid that I was doing more I was doing real in some sense I would say I was doing real more a a deeper level of theology maybe put it that way a deeper level of theology than I'm doing right now writing research on Mm -hmm. on other experience or when my son was born and was in the neonatal intensive care unit for 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 several weeks I, I was doing more theology 
in those moments. Like the, f- the first moment that I was able to hold my son, I learned more about the nature of God mm. than I did in all my years of studying mm. academic theology. And so mm. the, we as academics have to occasionally get out of our ivory tower and, and sort of realize that the, the, there's a lot of, or there is wisdom, there is insight, there is God at work in the communities and the places where we might not name them. Yeah, and I, and I think that that absolutely fits in with this, I mean, this larger question we're talking about, about public theology, which is, you know, as I've been as I've been working on, on Tracy and thinking about the way he talks about different publics, you know, we're really in a lot of ways thinking about public in terms of uh, the masses, you know, society at large, you know, whatnot. And, and one, I mean, one of the things Tracy talks about is that that is a primary reference group for some people, but not necessarily for everyone. And so when I, in my own, I don't know, excessive fretting about what I'm doing, Sometimes I think about like that's really who I should be talking to, and it, it may not be that that's you know the primary goal or the best use of my talents in the way that it might be for you or for or for others or for Sister mm-hmm. Simone Campbell mm-hmm. or Jim Martin. I don't know. I I have to think more about that, I guess, as I always try to do. And it, and it gets to that yeah. question of like we asked this at Daily Theology for a Shark Week maybe two or three years ago, like who does a theologian serve? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really fundamental question. Yeah. And and it's it's that's the ultimate vocation question, right? Mm-hmm. And some people are gonna answer that with more of a very pragmatic career job understanding, right? With a the line to get, you know, tenure and full professor and, you know, to be able to, you know, live the American dream, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as if there that exists anywhere. But Others are going to to see it in a vocational sense, right? And and now, you know, no judgment on who, however one decides that. But if you answer it with a more vocational sense, what role does the church play in that? Mm-hmm. And what role does the public play in that? Can we do th- theology? And to paraphrase Evangelii Gaudium, I think one eighty, can we do theology as if acting as if? God, the, the poor do not exist? Mm-hmm. Can we do theology mm-hmm. acting as if what's happening to our common home is not happening? Like, like can we do theology in a, in a vacuum? I don't think so. But in terms of even that vocational sense, mm-hmm. I, I think we have to be asking what's going— we have to be asking this question. Even if you're doing medieval theology or uh, theologies that might not be referencing the current you know, ecological issue, we, we, we cannot pretend that we are somehow on a different planet. Mm-hmm. Maybe one follow-up question to this is to, to return to the question of social movements, organizations, community, which I, I know is a, a big passion of yours— how do you situate that within the vocation of public theology? And also, if this question makes sense, how how do you think about the dynamic of, you know, the international and the local mm-hmm. as part of doing public theology via, you know, these kinds of organizations and movements? Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, that's really interesting. The second part makes me think of some conversations that have been happening at this conference we're at on Americanism and the state of the church in the United States. And obviously, I mean, that's the theme of the conference, so that so the, the, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of the papers and topics and conversations are around the United States. But I, I, I really think that one of the big challenges, and this isn't new to the United to, the, to U.S. Catholics, and it's not only a problem for Catholics, but I think one of the big challenges that American Catholics face, and including academics, 
is the difficulty of seeing a cosmopolitan vision Mm. of the world. And I think we have to be appreciative of the fact that the sun does not revolve around American culture and and especially Northeast white American culture or West Coast American culture or Midwest, like our specific Mm -hmm. identities, whatever, however they, they they construct them, whatever like TV, like mainstream TV, like sets up what is American culture in different places. So I, I think if we, we need to find a way to understand the global under universality of the church and to realize that it's not all about us. Mm -hmm. And to have an appreciation to ask questions, well, what is the lived experience of the church in Latin America, in Nigeria, in Kenya, uh, which are, and all these little local other contexts are different. Mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean we have to travel to these places. If it's great if we can or invite people from those places to visit us, but we have to find at least to have that disposition, a cosmopolitan, and I think that's appropriately Catholic. So for this is what I think social movements can do and international social movements can do. Now, Catholic social movements and secular social movements have a really hard time engaging Americans in the global families of movements, hmm. it's it's not it's all, why why do you think that is? We're so we're big. Like yeah. I, I I suspect that it would be also true. You could probably also say that of Russia. Mm-hmm. I suspect you might also be able to say that of China eventually, when there are more and more social movements that 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 are connected there. So even like social movements that have American affiliates. The American experience is going is very different than the global experience. Like when we think of YMCA, most of the time we think of a gym, right? Or or a song. Or a song, right? Yeah. But YMCA is a global movement of young Christian men's associations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the YMCA, and I did a lot of advocacy work with the leaders, advocacy leaders of YMCA and the Global Scout movement. The, and the joke was always like in the U.S., like. They're not youth movements. Mm-hmm. They're another – they're service providers or they're clubs or groups. And the global internationality identity doesn't always permeate the American worldview, right? Mm. We're, we're surrounded by water on on two sides, Canada and then Mexico, right? We, we're not like a Belgium or a France where we're, you know, so close to, to other places. So I think, I mean, I think that national, and I think the myth of American exceptionalism is, is permeates and prevents us from seeing the other. I think that's somewhat sinful, mm-hmm. but I, I, it's a structurally, I think as a social system, that's a structural sin, but I, it's understandable at some mm-hmm. level why we would not, see that. So this is where the church has a real challenge. So I think we really need to find, and this is where social movements, global social movements can really, I think, help to break down those barriers and those walls and help us to see that we're, we can be part of global networks. Mm-hmm. And that, you see that with religious congregations, right? And even colleges and universities that are part of or sponsored with religious congregations are increasingly doing that in a really positive way in high schools even. Like Jesuit high schools in the United States making connections with Jesuit high schools in, in Southern Africa, a study of like, uh, or having an Ursuline high school in South Africa sending students to an Ursuline high school in New York and doing like that. That's really cool. So that the church has a real potential to do that in a way that not all denominations have that potential. So okay. I think that's a real obligation for us. And as theologians, we should need to also find to, to realize, have some sort of like humility 
that maybe our perspectives are not always 100% the perspectives of every other human being on the planet. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned like structural sin a, a moment ago, and you know some people sort of struggle with this idea of structural sin in comparison with personal sin and like individual choices that I make and whatnot. And you, in your, your book, which is titled The Structures of Grace, like you've made a case for sort of like a structural view of grace that's not identical to you know an individual experience of grace I, and i know you you have case studies of movements as part of that like what what do you mean by a structure of grace like what does that mean to you and yeah and, and by proposing this in the same i give the same caveat in some way that john paul ii does when he talks about structures of sin to to say that it doesn't mean the communities or the or the idea of like racism has a soul, mm-hmm. but it, it is to say that these structures are in such a way that they do not reflect the structural sin part, do not reflect the way that God intends the world to be. Mm. So the communities that are out there that are working to in their very small ways and imperfect ways to make the world look a little bit more as the world as the king, towards the kingdom of God, whether that's through providing education and empowerment to refugees or whether that's empowering young women industrial workers to claim their rights, that those are experiences of God at work in the world. Mm-hmm. And the really interesting question, I think, for us to, to ask if those of us involved in social movements is, do we see God at work in our communities? Mm-hmm. And if so, and this is, I think, the key part, it's not just to give us a pat on the back and say, yay, God is present, and many of us know that. But what does that mean for how we organize? Mm-hmm. Do we provide, do we create spaces to listen to God's voice? Do we have discernment structures? Do we ask, does our, are we, where does the kingdom of God, do we ask about where does the incarnation say? Where does the Holy Spirit call us to say? And so I think a, a theological framework of structural grace uh, enables uh, organizations to also have a, a moment of self-reflection. So it's not, but it also I think is is a is a, a sort of anti-Pelagian type type uh, reflect, <laughs> point too, because so often we're like, yay, religious, yay, Jesuits, we're saving the world. It's, no, I mean we have to say God is if we're doing anything that's worth anything it's like because god is at work in our community mm-hmm. so we have to name that and we shouldn't be afraid of naming that so there i mean there's a maybe a, a comparable sense in which you know you as an individual you know there is grace in your life there's also sin in your life like it's the same issue with organizations right like, oh my gosh yeah, yeah. we're yeah. human organizations right even the church mm-hmm. right well and that's part of what i was thinking yeah. about as you were talking it is I mean, someone who might bristle at the idea of, like, a structure of grace, it's like, well, what do you think the church is? I mean, if we're going to talk about, say, like, the Holy Spirit is guiding the church, for example, then we're not just saying, like, the Holy Spirit is, like, whispering in the ears of all these indiv- different individuals, right? Like, there's there's something more corporate in the or bodily or, or, or communal in, in that sense. And that's, that's, I think, really liberating because, A, you realize that it's not, not all up to you. Mm-hmm whether you're a pastor or a head of a mission committee at a university or whatever the job is or part of a social movement or uh, a leader of a religious community, it's not all up to you, right? You're not supposed to save the world. That, That there is a deeper thing at work. 
if we be- if we believe it, and mm-hmm. I, I I do believe that. The other thing that it does is enables us to have adult relationships with the communities that we're a part of. Mm. So I, I, one of the key things of having an adult romantic relationship or an adult friendship is to be able to realize that the person that you're in a relationship with has really awesome qualities, but also isn't perfect, <laughs> right? Like, uh, I mean, other than you, Steve. Well, but, but, but even like your own relationship with yourself to realize you are not perfect. And, that, mm-hmm. and, and that's okay, and you can have to work at that. And that's that continual call of conversion. And that doesn't mean that what the good things that are being done are any less important. So we, how do we have adult relationships with the church where we get a new pastor who is a jerk, that, and we don't just like turn around and walk out? Mm-hmm. Or the music changes, and we don't like it, and we don't just turn around and walk out of the church forever, yeah. right? And that's... The, and I think the real challenge for Catholicism, one of the biggest challenges for Catholicism in the U.S. is, and around the world, is, uh, and this is hampered by consumerism, and it's also hampered by, by, by people's just basic desires to not take responsibility sometimes, because it's not easy, is, is this challenge of getting people to see faith as an, through an adult lens. Mm-hmm. How do we form adults in society? Yeah. And, and how, for you, does that fit into the question of, you know, say, lay involvement, lay leadership, things like that. Like, I, I think about my own experience in this past year, and I, I was volunteered to help out with RCIA at my parish. And there, <laughs> some of it, is, I mean, it's particular to uh, the organizational difficulties of, of my home parish. Is, but, you know, there was sort of, there was very strong direction and leadership from, you know, the, the pastor initially. And as as he, I think, kind of phased out that it wasn't always clear within the parish, like what we were supposed to do from mm. there. Mm. And we, I mean, we continued the program and, you know, we, we did great work with the people, with the people who were going through RCIA and like they had very rich experiences, but there was also this sense of, uh, <laughs> I don't know who's in charge or I don't know <laughs> what I'm in charge of. I don't know what responsibilities I have or what duties I have per se, other than show up every week prepared to, you know, talk about X, Y, Z. And so I, I, I wonder to an extent that you're talking about, you know, this kind of adult relationship to the church and adult relationship to the faith and right and that, that bit from Corinthians about when I was a child, you know, it spoke to the child, can't adult, I put away childish things. What is, what is that sense of a more adult relationship to the church mean to you as far as lay responsibility? Oh, great. I mean, that's, that's, I think, a question that... Lay, lay leaders and in the movements that I've worked with have been asking since the 40s. And in fact, the, some of the reflections that we had in the 1950s, the movement of Catholic intellectuals called Ikmika Pax Romana that I'm, I'm president of right now, we were asking this question about lay responsibility in the 50s, that, that, and some of those reflections got into the conciliar texts, which mm. is a hidden story that, that many people don't know, the, the role of lay movements in shaping Vatican II's teaching. But I, I think the real challenge, or, or I think one of the questions that you're raising is not about having more lay people in roles of pastoral ministry, which is really, really important, right? Or having more lay people as theologians, which is really important, like myself or us. But I think it's it's how do we get people who are business people mm-hmm. or who are who own a quickie mark, if quickie mark exists, right? Mm-hmm. How do we get people who who are in the communities? 
the person that's cleaning the offices after we leave, the person that's selling stuff to us at the hardware store? How do we get them to identify themselves as full Christians? Mm -hmm. And so the movements that I work with and the movement models that I think are really still relevant and still useful, the models of specialized Catholic action, where lay people, whether they're engineers or workers or farmers, young or old of different generations, they meet and they lead their own communities, not as a not as a parallel to the power structure, integrated with the diocesan power structures, mm-hmm. but as spaces that they're able to lead and create their own voice and where their reflections on the gospel and the work of God in their day and the, the absence of God mm-hmm. in their weekly experiences enable them to be adults and not consumers mm-hmm. and not children. And that is, uh, I think, we need, that's an urgent priority. And I, I really do wonder, like, oftentimes when we talk about lay people in the church, we're talking about a lay campus minister or someone, a lay person who runs the finances at a parish. Those are really important positions. But we need to start asking, well, what about the, the lay people who go, who go to church on Sundays? How are they involved in the life of the church? Because mm-hmm. Vatican II wants to cause us to be full adult Christians. Mm-hmm. It's really full conscious and active participation in the sacraments. I think also we have to talk about what is full conscious and active participation in the life of the church mm-hmm. look like. When they're sent out at the end of Mass. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. right? And the whole model of specialized Catholic action that the decree on the apostolate laity of Vatican II affirms is this model of the apostolate of like to like. So the apostolate of how does the worker minister to and witness to and evangelize the other workers, the student to the student, the teacher to the teacher, right? And if do we really see ourselves as apostles? Do we really see ourselves as missionaries? Mm-hmm. Even those who teach and love Evangelic Gaudium, do we really, like, would we identify as such in the academic classroom? And that's a, maybe a scary question. I don't know. But. <laughs> but I remember being at this Theology on Tap presentation at my parish in Chicago in, like, 2006. And I was working as an actuary, and I was, you know, between grad school and whatnot. And I don't remember exactly the presentation per se but i remember we broke into small groups after and the question we were tasked with was how do you see your job as a ministry and you know i was in this group of like eight or ten people and you know some were teachers and some were doctors and it was really easy for them and i was really explicit about it. i was like i don't see my job as a ministry like i don't see myself as a minister mm-hmm. within my job and I, I mean, I can look back in a certain sense and see about ways and the way in which I, you know, by by trying to live a gospel life, I was witnessing to others, and people knew I was religious, so there was that. But like, I, in in a way, one of my questions about like uh, taking on an adult role within the church and within the faith is, uh, do you think people want to do that? <laughs> but and I th- and I well I think that I think it's a crisis of citizenship. Yeah, and I think and I'm not saying they yeah, shouldn't no, want to. Do right? It, no, but. exactly. And I, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's a crisis of the same crisis that we're facing in civil society, the crisis of citizenship, mm-hmm. which is which is not confined to the United States. Mm-hmm. Are the Ikmika movements? We are concerned about that in many parts of the world. This this crisis of governance, this crisis of democracy, where people are not 
actively participating in their communities as the democratic model ideally envisions, mm-hmm. right? So that leaves the room for people to abuse the system. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the same sort of impulse. People are busy. People are tired. People, it's a lot easier to be told what to do. Mm-hmm rather than take on leader, leading roles. It's a lot easier to drop money in a collection plate and feel like you did your part. Mm-hmm. And I think given the amount of time, I, and this is where maybe as our move in society and the technological revolutions we're going in, one, ad, one point to advocate for would be more free time. Mm-hmm. And free time from work to be able to do work of the church in your like to be involved and do yeah. other things, right? But that's I mean obviously a luxury for for people who are uh, who are in privileged positions and privileged jobs to be able to do that. But uh, but I think our I think people consumer culture doesn't want we we still have this no matter how many times that people try to say it you you don't you you don't I, you don't just sort of like attend church like you would attend a movie mm-hmm. or a lecture, right? Yeah, like the Eucharist is not akin to going to a lecture. Mm-hmm. It's not popcorn. Yeah. It's not popcorn. Yeah. Right. It's not popcorn for the liturgical movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And but how many people have that sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's not and many of us are gonna then we'll blame we'll blame the, the, the poor pastor and we'll put all the responsibility on him. But we have to be self reflective and ask, well, what is it that we're constructing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What have we done and what have we have failed to do yeah. in, in, in making the church? Why do I church? need to be entertained? Why is that my lens? And, and what is it that's driving that? Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if you went back 200 years if, if how different it would be. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But, but I, certainly pop culture and the, the entertainment media, I think, has a role to yeah. play here. But right? I, and I also I think about you know, all these stories of the, the pre-Vatican II church and how I mean, it's not like anyone was paying attention to the mass then either. <laughs> it's just they, their mode of not paying attention was to, you know, go and kneel at the statue of a saint or say a rosary or do a novena while, you know, other stuff is going on up in front. Yeah. And, and now that we've discouraged all of that, you know, people are sitting in the pews <laughs> and, and uh, updating their checkbook or whatever it might be instead. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, or check or checking out the or secretly hiding, hiding that they're reading the bulletin. Um, <laughs> but 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 I think the question is like, do we, you know, in the '60s, the I think it was the Students for Democratic Society and others started talking about like participatory democracy, right? Mm-hmm. What what does a participatory ecclesiology look like? And I I think. This is a role that theologians could play and intellectuals and Catholic, those of us with privileged spaces, right? Um, you know, we, we say our lives are hard, but really our lives are not mm-hmm. not hard. So how do we maybe imagine and take our intellectual brain capacity to think about, well, how can we better construct a church that's more participatory? How can we better help to bring about uh, communities of adult Christians? Mm-hmm. I don't know what... I don't. I. I don't. I think there's a lot of searching for that. I don't think that there is a magic answer, but I think we have to continue to ask those questions and mm-hmm. start start looking at that. Yeah. So, what for you then would be like? What What's the What's the research project you're on now, or what's the one coming up for you? Like, what is it that What's the What are the questions that you want to you know spend the next you know few years or whatnot? Yeah. Working, working through. Yeah, I'm. I'm always concerned about the future of global governance and the UN and the governance crisis, and and I think there are parallel and the role of the church in that. But but the the big interest of mine right now 
outside of trying to organize lay communities of, of adult Christians and parishes and small groups and network them globally. I, I mean, I think in terms of the theological question I'm looking at is, is the whole question of institutional identity. So in the next decade, we are going to see a major change, I believe, uh, on identity questions around Catholic hospitals, Catholic, Catholic universities, Catholic schools, Catholic charities. I, I mean, it's already been happening, but I think the rapid pace of change is going to continue to, 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 to make this, this like a dramatic changes. Closures, mergers, disaffiliations with the church. But in the midst of that, how do we, how do we accompany those institutions that want to and feel called to remain Catholic identity, have Catholic identity, mm-hmm. and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we f- prevent the Catholic identity becoming a brand that s- serves some elite group of people? Okay. And so I really am trying to work on trying to ha- find a th- theological frameworks that can be practically practical and assist institutions mm-hmm. as they go through this discernment identity, identity questions. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you. So as you know, we like to close with some, you know, uh, I like to think they're less serious questions, <laughs> although you never know. I like to start with a question that I have shamelessly stolen from another podcast I've been listening to a lot recently called The Other 51, which is a, a podcast about writing and writers and how they write and whatnot. And he always, his last big question is, what is the best thing that you have read lately? <laughs> and, and I mean, people always get, they, yeah. they, they could be books, they could be the article they read that morning. I mean, it, there's, you know, certainly mm. a range and it could be in your field or not. Yeah. I mean, that's. I've but. actually, I've been rereading a book about the, the biography of John Baptiste de La Salle, the founder of the De La Salle Christian Brothers. And what I love about this biography by Luke Somme is that it details how this guy failed, 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 and tried, and <laughs> failed, and tried to start communities. And he was like, it, it's like it, you read the half of this biography, and it's, a, it's like a failure. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome because he's, he ultimately succeeds, and he doesn't really see it in his <laughs> lifetime. But his, the communities that he starts become one of the largest educational like, in, networks in the world. Mm. And I think that's really gives me a little a lot of hope that like so I I really like I I like the fact that we could tell lives of saints of failures right that makes me feel a little better about my efforts but fair enough. Uh, number two, are you a coffee person or a tea person? I am a coffee person, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Do you drink coffee like all day long or? Yes, I mean I am addicted. I would li- probably live in a Panera, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I, I practically do live in a Panera, but I, I know. I'm more of the iced tea kind of guy. <laughs> can you, like, if you drink coffee before bed, can you still sleep fine? Yes. Are you, are you at that level? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? <sighs> the, the, I, I, I like We Are Called a lot. It was at my wedding. I have liturgical songs planned out for my uh, for my funeral, but um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I <laughs> and they're all like guitar nineteen nineteen sixties St. Louis Jesuits. Like great. <laughs> what? It, yeah. After I heard some bad jokes about uh, one bread, one body, I, I I cannot hear that joke. I cannot hear that mm-hmm. song again. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of whom or what would you aspire to be the patron saint? I would love 
to be the patron saint of the 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 curmudgeons. <laughs> what, 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 is, what is it that makes you a good patron saint of the curmudgeon? I can shake my fist at the clouds. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like uh, a, like Abe Simpson. <laughs> you want you want people to be getting up of lawns and <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> uh, all right, and lastly, uh, what would your uh, pope name be? Should you you know through some miraculous intervention be elected pope someday so, in the future? Uh, Patricio the first, yeah. Okay, first of his name, Patrick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why why Patrick? It's awesome. It's Irish. <laughs> I would take the, the, the Spanish form, Patricio, in honor of the, like, the Catholic, Irish Catholics who, like, fought in the, against the United States in the Mexican-American War, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good old provocative wrap yeah, up there. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. You, even, yeah, you, you knew what the number would have been and everything. So that's impressive. Uh, All right. Well, uh, Kevin, thank you so much thank for, you, Steve, for being here. Yeah. So, this is great. Yeah. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 